I want to thank um, Steve and Albert for stepping up. Scott Finch is experiencing a lot of back pain today, so we can be in prayer for him. But we, uh, we're, we're deeping, we're reaching into the bench today, and so uh, Noah asked me if I needed the wireless mic, and I said, well, I don't, I don't move around like Dennis. You all know this is. I'm pretty much locked in place right here uh, today. Um, I've never started a sermon with an ACDC reference, but there's a first time for everything. There's a song that they sang titled, Rock and Roll Ain't Noise Pollution. We're going to talk a little bit about noise today. And I talk about noise and what ACD's talking about is sort of that loud noise that everybody can hear. But what about the noise that only you can hear? I'm not talking about when you have your headphones on. I'm talking about the noise that comes from inside. The noise that comes from your very soul. That can often be deafening. It can often be anxiety producing. As I consider this past year, I, I think about how much noise and anxiety there was and continues to be. You think about jumping back a year as much as you don't, may not want to. Think about the initial anxiety associated with this global pronouncement of a pandemic, something that hadn't happened in 100 years. How, I mean, how many times do we hear about 1918 and what happened then? The anxiety about the disease, what was known, what was unknown, who did it impact more, what should my behavior be? The anxiety about the initial disorientation of sheltering in place, of suddenly stopping what had been normal to do what was very much abnormal, to work from home, school from home, church from home. And then on top of that, the anxiety of sharing space with all these people who are supposed to be at work or at school, um, discovering new rhythms, all of this leading to additional anxiety. There was anxiety over loss, loss of freedoms, loss of habits, loss of celebration, graduations, weddings, all those things disrupted. We had anxiety over all the differing opinions. Is the government overreaching? Is it underreaching? Is public health doing too much, doing too little? You know, why, why doesn't my school, my church, my employer, my friends, my relatives take this as seriously as I do? Or why are they taking it so dang seriously? Now we've had the anxiety of coming back, back to work, back to school, back to worship. But it wasn't just about COVID-19 this past year. There was anxiety over issues of politics, issues of race, issues of justice. Who's going to win the election? Are we heading towards a civil war? What will the jury decide? Anxiety over the direction of the country, the breakdown of society, my role in making sure that I shout loudly enough to be heard, that I post enough social media opinions to win the war. Anxiety over the loss of friendships as a result of these differing opinions on politics and race and public health 
anti-mask, anti-vax. These opinions, whether we should wear it or not, get vaccinated or not, vote for this person or not, return to worship or not, and then feeling the anxiety of judging other people, their behavior, and yet attempting to reconcile that with my own call to live as a follower of Christ. I can go on and on. I worry about losing jobs and 401ks and would there be enough toilet paper? All those things we got anxious about. <clears throat> and the national data bears it out. We saw increases across the board in all age groups, increases in anxiety reported, loneliness, depression, on and on and on. We are an increasingly anxious people with increasingly noisy souls. And the question to be asked is what can we do to quiet our anxious souls? The root word of anxiety literally means to strangle, to choke off. Our souls are being strangled because we've not learned how to address the root cause. Now, anxiety existed long before 2020. We know this to be true. I just realized this week that um, this, is, this last week was the 10-year anniversary of the tornadoes that came through. I know that because it was the 10th anniversary of Prince William and Catherine's wedding. So I remember that as we were shutting the college down to send people home, and in, in the chaos and the craziness, some students had figured out an outlet that worked in the lobby of Carter Hall and were huddled around a TV watching the wedding dressed in their finest, drinking tea. They'd found calm in the midst of chaos. But anyway, that, those tornadoes were anxiety-producing. We've had all sorts of anxiety-producing events in all of our lives. <clears throat> and I say that because we've also had the same go-tos as people for when we have anxiety. Our go-tos are typically consumption or escapism. We try to manage our anxiety <clears throat> our anxious souls by drowning out the noise through consumption of food, through self-medicating of alcohol and other substances, consumption of pornography, escaping into gaming, self-harm, cocooning in our echo chambers, increasing our screen time, withdrawing from people, sleeping more often. But each one of those things may provide a, a measure of relief or distraction, they ultimately fail every time. Today I want to look at where God provides an answer through this short Psalm of David. So, so please read with me Psalm 131. I believe it's a really good place for us to start as it demonstrates what's involved in quieting our noisy and anxious souls. Hear the word of the Lord. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Gracious God and loving Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. It's, it's true that we, we acknowledge that we are restless and anxious souls. Our hearts are lifted up in opposition to you. I pray, Father, that your spirit would take your word and use it to quiet our souls so that we might know peace in you. 
May you and you alone be glorified as I seek to preach your word that we might clearly hear what you have to teach us today. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Foundationally, this psalm is showing us that the path to a quiet soul is through humility and dependence upon the Lord. Having a proper view of ourselves, having a proper view of God, having a proper view of other people. Psalm 131 is describing not a personality type, but a learned posture. A quiet and calm soul that is to be trained in each one of us. To learn how to calm and quiet our souls, it's essential that we diagnose the characteristics of a soul that's noisy and what contributes to that restlessness and anxiety that we can feel. So looking at verse 1, I want us to look at the path of pride, how pride grows in us. Notice the movement in verse 1 from our heart to our eyes to our actual mind and thinking. David can identify these because he knows what it is to have been anxious and restless, to have had a noisy soul. He says first, my heart is not lifted up. The heart is the center of who we are. It makes sense that David would start here with the heart. When our, when our souls are restless and noisy, it begins with a lifting up of our hearts, of putting something on, on the throne of our lives where God should be, worshiping something other than God. As we, as we lift ourselves above God and we build our identity around something other than God, this produces a distorted view for our souls that can result in either self-exaltation or self-loathing. And regardless of whether I'm loving myself or hating myself, the focus is always on me, and that's where the noise begins. In the same way, anxiety begins when someone's trying to love equally both the creator and something in creation. And whether ourselves or some created thing, Jesus makes very clear in the Sermon on the Mount that you can't love the creator and created things in the same way. It's just impossible. An anxious soul is a sign that you've lifted your heart above God. When David says in verse 1 that his heart is not lifted up, he's describing himself in relationship to God. He's essentially saying, previously, Lord, I did. I lifted myself above you. I worshipped created things. I worshipped myself. And I know now that only leads to, to bad things. It leads to anxiety, it leads to noise, and there's, there's no rest in that. But pride, David notices it here, it, it progresses. It's not just about me and my relationship to God. At the heart of pride is this goal to find our ultimate hope in something else, our ultimate meaning in something that's created and fleeting. So he goes on to show that it's also not just about my relationship with God, but how I view other people. The second part of verse 1, he says, my eyes are not raised too high. Once we've lifted our hearts, our, our eyes follow. If lifted hearts demonstrate that we believe we're worthy of worship, then eyes that are raised too high show that we seek to justify ourselves by comparing ourselves to others. We raise our eyes too high and we turn other people into rivals. We put ourselves over or under them in competition and in poisonous comparison. 
because ultimately the noisy soul is never content with simply being successful, but being more successful than him or more successful than her. The noisy soul isn't content with a 90 on the exam. Was that 90 higher than that person? It's not content with a new home, but only if it's bigger than someone else's. It's a, it's a vicious cycle that feeds on itself, but we don't actually like ourselves very much if we're in the presence of someone who scored higher on the exam or who's accomplished more than we have. The reality of having eyes raised too high is we don't find joy in anything other than being able to compare ourselves favorably to other people. A Christian counselor tells this story about one of his clients. She said that she had almost no true peers, people with whom she related eye to eye. Her relationships were not characterized by generosity, candor, or trust. There were a few pedestal people in her life, people she thought walked on water who could do no wrong, and there were many, many pit people in her life, people she looked down on for one reason or another. The two categories were connected only by an elevator shaft. A person could fall off the pedestal and end up in the pit, but no pit person had ever been rehabilitated. She had a long history of disappointment in every relationship. Family and former friends lodged in her mental doghouse. Unsurprisingly, she was a woman with a lot of inner noise. Fretful, self-preoccupied, easily offended, depressive, competitive. But as she grew in Christ, she grew in composure. She gained an inner gyroscope. As she learned to live in the way of peace, lo and behold, she began to discover peers and to build friendships. A comparative soul is always an anxious soul. It's always a noisy soul. Whether we're looking down at people or whether we're looking up at them, we're miserable and the noise continues. There's a beautiful hymn we sing sometimes by Anna Waring titled, Father, I Know That All My Life. I'm going to read one verse of that. She writes, I ask thee for a thoughtful love through constant watching wise to meet the glad with joyful smiles and to wipe the weeping eyes and a heart at leisure from itself to soothe and sympathize. A heart at leisure from itself. And that's, that is a beautiful lyric. A heart able to rest, to not worry about glory, not self-focused but able to love others, having eyes to see the needs of others, and trust the Lord to meet whatever needs we might have. That's where we hope to be. But as David goes on, we have to see that the natural progression of pride moves from our hearts being lifted up and our eyes being lifted up to our minds and our thinking. He goes on to say, I, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. When I read that, I'm reminded of Deuteronomy 29, 29. Moses writes, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. We don't tend to like secrets. We don't tend to like a lack of control. We don't like to know, to not know what we think we ought. 
So much of our anxiety is trying to control the uncontrollable or know the unknowable, thinking that we are responsible for things that we are not, trying to play God without actually being God. Now, I don't know what that looks like for you. Maybe it showed up in that list that I read at the beginning. But I can say that I had a very powerful realization this last year um, of this very thing that I was guilty of. I was asked to be in charge of the, the pandemic planning, the, the COVID response uh, for the college where I work. And looking backwards, I can say, you know, uh, praise the Lord, he has protected us, and it was truly this incredible team effort. Um, it was a, but it was a huge undertaking. And all summer long and into the fall, I had this increasing anxiety about whether we're going to make it. And what if we don't? And it's my fault. And I became so anxious about case counts and compliance and who's not being compliant and don't you know we could we could shut down at a moment's notice and it was just shouting in my soul because I was taking inappropriate amounts of godlike ownership for the success of the plan how I would be judged fearful of the worst anxious about failing everybody Kelly knows this story and maybe a couple others of you, but it was God's grace in the midst of this in the fall, really just God's sweet revelation to me that it's not on me. And even if we did send everybody home, he would take care of that as well. It was a powerful reminder that I can only control what I can control. It's not on me. And any grasping beyond that is going after the secret things that cause this, this noise and anxiety. We try to be God when we pursue and try to control things that only God can control. It's the natural outworking of thinking that we are God. We attempt to control things that we can't, and it ends poorly. Another way we try to play God is by trying to control other people. We desire their acceptance and their attention, and we're willing to do just about anything to gain that. Whether that be through manipulation, people-pleasing, flirting, lying, or, or any other means, we play God by attempting in manipulative ways to get people to notice us and choose to spend time with us. Maybe it's through the exaggeration of our needs, the, the embellishment of our past. Maybe it's the way we wield information as currency gossiping and sharing nuggets about others, maybe through withholding affection or attention. Maybe it's through the jokes we tell, the comments that we make, and whether we laugh at those jokes or say something about those comments because we want to be accepted. What's particularly sad about this is that in the attempt to control others, we're the ones being controlled. We're controlled by what they think about us. In the end, when I occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous, when I try to play God, when I try to control people, I end up in bondage to the very things, those very things, and perpetually miserable, perpetually anxious, 
And as a result, my soul is steadily strangled. Counselors call this codependency. We, we desperately want and need other people to love us. As a result, we're controlled by those beliefs. Instead of a loving and worshipful fear of God, we have a fear of others and care too much for what they think of us. We try to play God and the results are disastrous. Playing God without actually being God leads to resentment of God and an increasingly noisy soul. It's a tale as old as eternity. It was Lucifer himself who sought to be God and was cast out of the heavens. It was Adam and Eve who sought to be like God, believed Satan's lie and only to be cast from the garden. And David, who wrote this psalm, knows this as well as anyone. He learned this the hard way, being brought low by his attempt to play God and control the situation with Bathsheba and Uriah. He's able to sing this song because he knows that the proud soul is a noisy soul, that it is frantic. It's always anxious as it fears being found out and proved to be a fraud. The noisy soul, the lifted up heart, will always feel threatened and insecure. And it's a profound truth repeated throughout scripture that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is of tremendous encouragement to the humble, but for the proud, it is quite literally scary as hell. To know that God is actively in opposition to my proud, lifted up heart means that there is no rest for me. No quiet for my soul. I must stay on the lookout, stay on the run, and this is no way to live in perpetual fear and insecurity. Is it any wonder that we're just spinning ourselves into the ground with our anxiety? There's good news. I spent the last 15 minutes painting a pretty bleak picture, but there is good news. We don't have to live this way. The humble and quiet soul is peacefully at rest because it's not relying on itself. It's not relying on its achievements. It's not relying in its comparison to others. All those things ultimately fail and give us no hope. The quiet soul rests in that which is strongest that which is most secure. David Pallinson, a Christian counselor, tells us that we cannot destroy self-will by sheer will. We are both not strong enough and too strong, if that makes sense. We can't simply say, today is the day that I stop being anxious. Done. Check. Let's move on. Today, I'll stop trying to bend the universe to my will. The reality is you're too strong. You need help the same way a drowning person needs help, help from outside of yourself to throw you that, that lifeline. You can't make yourself stop drowning. Only one thing is strong enough to overpower a noisy soul, and that's our Lord. And he accomplishes this through his promises in and through Jesus Christ. There's no better place to be than in Christ, resting in the truth of what he's done on my behalf 
knowing that I can't be taken from my father's hand and I'm free to be who he created me to be, his dearly loved child. David begins to unpack this in verse 2. He talks about the quiet that he has learned, how he's begun to train him in himself this calm and quiet soul. He's, he's learned the hard way where quiet comes from. He knows what it is to lift his heart, to raise his eyes, to play God. But over and through all of that, he has repented and known forgiveness. Forgiveness of his God. And nothing humbles a person quite like forgiveness. The reason David is able to calm and quiet his soul is because in humility and through the grace and goodness of his God, he's been able to lower his heart and his eyes and trust God to be God. He has an accurate view of who he is and who God is. The path to a quiet soul, the antidote for codependency is to know and fear the Lord, to know that God is bigger than you are. And God must be bigger to you than other people are. Again, the life of pride is fearful and insecure. The bigger I think I am, the bigger that I think other people are, the less safe I feel and the louder the noise becomes. But the smaller I am, the smaller I become, then the more secure I feel. I mean, it's the great antithesis of the gospel. The less I need glory, the less I need the approval of other people, the quieter my soul becomes and the more secure and content I am. You know, David likens this quiet soul to a weaned child. I mean, it's a great illustration. I thought I saw it. Cassandra and Gareth know this better than anybody at this current moment. The, the, uh, the unweaned child... Um, is, is rooting away, it's, it's irritable and demanding, it's fretful and fearful, it's, it's worried that about the milk, it will be gone, it won't get enough. It, the, the unweaned child views the mother as a means to an end, something that meets needs when I cry, that is there on demand, and this is all an illustration. I mean, childish versions of our own behaviors of anxiety and anger, jealousy and fear, discontentment and confusion, but in comparison, there's the, the weaned child, able to rest, content, quiet and at peace, coming to mom simply because she's mom and not the one that brings the milk that I need. How do we come to God? Do we only come when we want something? Do we only come to demand something? How are we training ourselves? How are we weaning ourselves to come to him only for him and not what he can give us simply because we want to be with him the weaned soul is not so consumed with what god can provide but is simply content with god and being with him trusting that he will provide that there's no reason to worry about whether his goodness is going to run out that his mercies won't be new again tomorrow. The weaned child can trust this. The weaned soul ought to trust this. The humble and quiet soul is content to be handled and dealt with by the Lord as he pleases. That's how David's depicting his submission to God here. Lord, I know you're going to take care of me. I don't know what that's going to look like, but I know 
You're going to take care of me, handle me however you want to. It reminds, it reminds me of Mary's response to Gabriel. You know, after this shocking announcement that she's going to be the one who carries, who bears the Son of God, her response, behold, I'm the handmaiden of the Lord. Be it done to me according to your will. In other words, Mary's saying, I'm in your hands, O Lord. I'm a, a weaned soul. I, I don't understand it. It's overwhelming, but I trust you. One of the most critical ways we develop this trust is to become more dependent upon God. It's so interesting, particularly in the book of John, when Jesus begins talking about his relationship with his heavenly father, he becomes childlike, very dependent. John 5, thir- uh, John 5 the, son of God can, the son can do nothing of his own accord. I can do nothing on my own. John 8, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the father taught me. Paul Miller has said that Jesus is without question the most dependent human being who ever lived. Because he can't do life on his own, he prays, and he prays, and he prays. When Jesus tells us that apart from me, you can do nothing, he's actually inviting us in to this dependent life. Learning how to live in dependence on his heavenly father. We forget that helplessness is actually how the Christian life works. Not in lifting our hearts, but in surrendering them. Not in raising our eyes, but in fixing them on Jesus. Not in trying to play God, but actually submitting to him. We received Jesus because we were weak, and that's how we're to follow him as well. The secret to the Christian life is being able to say every single day, I give up. I give up control. I choose to practice helplessness and dependence. And prayer is actually one of the most powerful ways that we can do this. It's this, this antidote to our anxiety. Prayer at, at, at its very basic is the essence of dependence and trust. If I see myself as God, who am I praying to? Just praying to myself? I'll, I'll never pray. If I think I can take care of a situation on my own, I'm not going to go to God. Prayerlessness is at the root of our anxiety. It's at the root of our noise. When you pray, you actually put yourself in a posture of dependence. You acknowledge your helplessness, and you acknowledge his strength. And in this, there is rest. David wraps up this psalm with verse 3 with an exhortation to God's people. He says, O Israel. Hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. It's important to note the context. This psalm is one of the 15 psalms of ascent. This was the song, it's like the travel, you know, your road trip mixtape. These are the songs that the people of God sang together as they pilgrimaged to Jerusalem three times a year for the big feasts. You know, one of those being, being Passover. These were family travel songs they sang together. And that phrase Hope in the Lord, O Israel, hope in the Lord, is actually a callback to the chapter right before this, Psalm 130. 
Now, I don't know if these are all in that order or not, but these were common, a common refrain. And I think it's helpful to look at this. Psalm 130 reads, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Those are the last two verses of Psalm 130. 131, he says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. 130, he unpacks a little bit more about what that hope entails. What is the reason for that hope? The reason for the hope is his steadfast love, his plentiful redemption from all of our sins. Why can our souls be completely at rest? Because of the unchanging, ever-faithful love of our Father. Even in the midst of all my difficulties, even when my circumstances aren't what I want them to be, the one constant will always be God's plentiful redemption, God's love for me. He never gives up on us. This is the steadfast love that quiets our souls, that calms our anxiety, that comes from outside of us and is strong enough to save us. What they look to and hope on those journeys, we can look back and know that it's been completed. It's been accomplished. God has redeemed us from all our sins in Christ. If you think about the soul, our souls, our souls are prone to anxiety, as we've been talking about, prone to the noise. But the loudest noise, the deepest anxiety of a soul, it should be this frightening question, how can I be made right with God? How can I, a sinful person who deserves death and separation from God, be forgiven and brought into fellowship with God? It's a terrifying, anxiety-producing realization that I can't do it on my own, that I'm dead in my sins. I can't be saved and secured for all time on my own. But God has silenced that noise forever in Christ Jesus. It's not up to us. It's only through God's grace in Jesus that the loudest noise is silenced in our souls so that we can rest. This is why our hope should be in the Lord for all time. This is why we ought to sing this song together. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a man who pastored for 30 years last century in Great Britain, wrote a book called Spiritual Depression. This is a quote from that book. He says, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Have you realized that most of your unhappiness, we can substitute anxiety and noise, whatever, you know, is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Psalm 1 and 31 are words given by God to shape our hearts, to speak to ourselves, to speak to one another. It's good news for anxious and noisy souls. I developed a peculiar habit a few years ago. I started following a certain chiropractor on YouTube. And he would start every appointment with his client by having them sit on his bench. And he would push into their lower back and pull their shoulders back and put them into proper posture. And they'd always say that that's uncomfortable. And he would say that the point of what he's about to do was to make what is uncomfortable comfortable. Or maybe other words, make the comfortable uncomfortable. 
This psalm puts us into proper posture, but it takes practice. We need to rehearse these promises. We need to be speaking them to ourselves, speaking them to one another. To one another. To, we need to practice lowering our hearts and eyes, quieting our souls, to make what is uncomfortable and unnatural into something that is comfortable and second nature. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the certain truth of your promises. Have, have mercy on us, Lord. May your spirit enable us to lower our hearts, to lower our eyes, uh, to let you be God, and to know truly what it is to embrace our dependence as we trust in the certain hope that is ours in Christ. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.